It's Tuesday, August the 2nd, 2022, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm Hoover's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. While that job title is mine and mine alone, I'm not the only fellow who is doing podcasts these days. If you don't believe me, go to Hoover's website, hoover.org, and check it out for yourself. You find our podcast by going to the tab that says Publications. You click on where it says, surprisingly enough, Podcasts. You can subscribe to any or all of them. You will get you uh, set up via iTunes. You can also sign up for our monthly podcast, which delivers the best of our podcast to your inbox each month. Hoover Podcast is one aspect of ideas defining a free society. And I think this podcast is going to make the cut because my guest today is John Cochran. He is the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. He's an economist specializing in financial economics and macroeconomics. If you're familiar with Hoover's body of work, then you'll recognize John's voice from our Goodfellows broadcast, where he and his colleagues Neil Ferguson and H.R. McMaster make sense of all things social, economic, political, and geopolitical. In fact, I think we're going to be taping an episode later this week focusing on Taiwan and Nancy Pelosi's visit there. By the way, if economics are a passion of yours and if you haven't already, by all means, check out John's truly outstanding blog, The Grumpy Economist. John, thanks for coming on the podcast today. It's a pleasure. And what a great guy you are that you start by plugging all your competition. I don't compete with you. I surrender to you, John Cochran. Uh, but seriously, folks, do check out the Grumpy Economist. That's a joke, by the way. John is not grumpy, as you might uh, ascertain. Uh, maybe in later in the podcast, to will tell you why he was grumpy, because it invokes one economist who I think we'll be talking about later. So, John, while I've got you here, I want to uh, play Bill Clinton with you in this regard. Uh, we all remember back in the days when Bill Clinton was being tried over Monica Lewinsky, and he had to... Uh, Sit down. He was sworn in. He was asked a question. And the question was this, John. He was said, Mr. President, you you said, quote, there's nothing going on between us when referring to Monica Lewinsky. And then Bill Clinton, John, went into his best Yale Law School mode and said the following, quote, it depends on what the meaning of is is. Well, here we are, John, about 25 years after that, and we're having this is is argument over the United States, maybe, maybe not being in recession. Quick question for you, sir. Is the United States economy in a recession? Well, that depends on what the meaning of recession is. <laughs> you teed me up for that one, didn't you? Yes. Uh, so, um, and this is so part of the theme here is I'm I'm going to tell you how little economists actually know, and, and the one thing my my many years of expertise gives me is I know where the bodies are buried and when other people don't really know what they're talking about. Um, so there is this phenomenon that the U.S. economy occasionally slows down and uh, people uh, lose their jobs and there's more unemployment and then it comes back again. Now, deep fundamental question, is this a separate phenomenon or is this, uh, you know, just like the weather, you know, temperature comes and goes, uh, you know, is, is growth above or below zero particularly significant or not? Um, where we are right now is GDP has apparently been uh, uh, negative. So total income, total product from the economy has has gone down slightly two quarters in a row. Two quarters now. right? Two quarters in a row. Uh, <laughs> now, what, what does that mean? Is that a distinct phenomenon? Is How, how different is you know, plus 0.01 versus minus 0.01? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny that uh, Johnson, I think, is the one who came up with two quarters in a row as a way of saying the U.S. wasn't in a recession. <laughs> Right. So, John, here's where we get into the uh, is, is, is. No, there is no could... formal definition uh, right. of that of that sort. And it's not even clear it's a, sep- a recession is a separate phenomenon. The fact is uh, total GDP is slowing down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the labor market is still unbelievably tight. It's very hard to get people to work. On the other hand, lots of people are refusing to work, even though there's uh, plenty of jobs around. So that's kind of where we are. Okay, so here's how we get into the easiest side of this, John. So if you go to the dictionary where layman like me go to say, okay, what is a recession? Here's what the dictionary says, quote, recession is a period of temporary economic decline during which trade and industrial activity are reduced, generally identified by a fall in GDP, gross domestic product, in two successive quarters, as you referenced. But John, you go to the National Bureau of Economic Research, and here's how they define a recession, quote, a significant decline in economic activity that is spread across the economy and lasts more than a few months. NBR looks at such things as GDP, employment, personal income and spending, retail sales, industrial production. So, John, there is the is-is of it a few months. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, this goes back a long way to the 1940s. Burns and Mitchell, who really the economists who identified, there's this fascinating feature of our economy. It, it's, it's widespread, too. Uh, you look around, you know, why should things in California go down at the same time as things in Massachusetts. Well, they do. 
right. kind of interest. So the widespread is important. Uh, and it's not, you know, why should the economy slow down and speed up? You know, nothing seems to change uh, externally in the economy. Yeah. So uh, technically, yes, the National Bureau of Economic Research has a bunch of sages, including uh, headed by our own uh, Hoover's own Bob Hall for the last God knows how long, uh, mm -hmm. that, that looks at all these numbers and, and burns some incense and waves some dead chickens around and decides a recession <laughs> happened typically about a year later. Uh, and, you know, it, it, so this is, I think, really a, tempo, a tempest in a teapot. Uh, right now, the decline is, is small and the labor market's strong. This is not the Great Depression. It's a kind of a funny political game uh, where the White House got out. The White House has been busy spinning economic affairs like crazy for the last year and a half. Putin's right. price hike, the great chicken conspiracy driving up inflation and so forth. So I think they were a little bit caught out on this. Is it or isn't it a recession? But it's not. I, I don't think this is an important issue. There are much more important issues. And, and one thing our listeners should be aware of, recessions are small. And it's kind of funny given how much effort we put into this, how much attention. GDP might go down a percent or two, but compared to the long-run growth of the U.S. economy, uh, recessions are small and transient things. The, the really important issue is that long-run growth has slowed by half since the year 2000. No one's talking about that. Right. So, John, here's Paul Krugman uh, on CNN, the New York Times columnist, economist, and uh, he was doing an interview uh, with Brian Settler on uh, his show, and uh, he was asked about uh, the recession. And here's what Krugman said, quote, none of the criteria that real experts use say we're in a recession right now. But then Krugman added the following, and what does it matter? So that is kind of an interesting question, John. Does it? What does it matter if we are in a recession, depending on who defines it? But if technically we have entered the R zone, I know obviously there's election year, and there's you know it's easy to now tag your opponent saying it's the Biden recession and so forth. But to the average American out there, what does it really matter if you formally say, okay, it's a recession? Well, not much, <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, you know it, it matters a lot to Krugman and his uh, efforts to buck up his friends in the Democratic Party, but. Um, uh, other than that, you know, deep recessions matter. So, uh, in a deep recession, lots of people lose their jobs, that, and and people who people's businesses will close down. And you know, they put a lot of effort into it. So, uh, these things are are painful uh, economic uh, realities. Um, much less painful in the modern era than than pre World War II. So, there has been some some improvement in the U.S. economy that we don't uh, suffer quite as badly as we used to. But but still, these are. Uh, you know, these are if we have a real recession, a serious recession, one where unemployment rises uh, a lot and businesses close down, that will be quite painful for many people in the U.S. economy. So that's something to worry about. But we're not we are, in fact, not there yet. We, we may be there. Uh, uh, other, other than that, yes, it's uh, it's politically important. Uh, how many disasters can they put together in a, in a small number of two years between the beginning of the administration and the midterms. <laughs> we'll see if we can add recession to, uh, to, to all of them. Okay. I think one challenge, John, for uh, for individuals in this information age is uh, consuming economic information is the proverbial drinking from the fire hydrant. So what's your advice on where people should go to process economic information and what indicators would you suggest they look at? Hoover's website, of course. <laughs> and Grumpy Economist. <laughs> and the Grumpy Economist. Yeah. Um, you know, for most people, what matters is what's going on in their business, their neighborhood, and so forth. So national economic statistics are, are uh, you know, kind of amusing. Uh, but um, other than that, um, you know, your own life typically is, is, is hit by the, we call them idiosyncratic, the factors that aren't just the national mood. And of course, inflation is going to hit all of us. Um, and uh, rising interest rates will hit all of us. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think there's a possibility that we are headed down uh, a replay of the 1970s, which will be unpleasant uh, for lots of people. You know, if the way this goes is inflation stays out of control, the Fed dramatically raises interest rates uh, in order to cause a recession that gets out of control. You know, lots of people lose their jobs. Construction sector goes down. That that'll be an unpleasant. Uh, way it goes up. But the, these things are very unpredictable. Uh, another truth is that nobody really knows what's going to happen. <laughs> okay. Uh, I teed you up at the beginning. Now you've teed me up brilliantly, John. Thank you. Let's talk about inflation. Uh, simple question for you, John. How did we get here? And what I want you to focus on is a uh, very clever phrase that I found that you using in the Grumpy Economist, the words helicopter drop. Tell us what the helicopter drop is. 
Uh, Milton Friedman uh, once said that if you want to get inflation, it's easy. Just drop money from helicopters. <laughs> like they do at minor league ballparks. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry? They do this at minor league ballparks, John. They will uh, sometimes bring in a helicopter and drop, you know, a thousand one dollar bills and put kids on the field. And of course, it's just a free for all because there's money flying everywhere and kids are trying to grab it. And it's it's great fun. But it's a great phrase, helicopter drop. I need to go see a minor league uh, ball game. That sounds like your clip. A lot it's in the movie Bull Durham. I send you the clip. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's wonderful. Um, yeah. But tell us, so, so uh, tell us about right. the federal helicopter drop. What does that mean? Exactly. So in my view, uh, and this is not uh, that, it's funny, this is a view that I share with Larry Summers, mm -hmm. uh, even though not the consensus view. Uh, during the pandemic, uh, you add it all up and our government um, printed up and quite literally printed up about $3 trillion worth of money. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I mean, it was reserves, not cash, but close enough. Uh, and uh, borrowed another $2 trillion <clears throat> and sent people and businesses checks. Now, a lot of that, I don't want to be grumpy about that. A lot of that was useful. It was important um, to help people who, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be really destitute if we close down the economy for six months. Now, whether closing down the economy for six months was a smart idea is another question, but given that that was going to happen. But it was vastly overdone, and, and lots of people got stimulus checks who, uh, didn't need them. I mean, everyone loves a check, but uh, the government has only so many resources. So uh, five trillion bucks, that, that's a lot of money. <laughs> and uh, that is, um, it's about 30% of um, uh, annual GDP. It's about 30% of the outstanding federal debt at the beginning. This is the, the kind of uh, borrowing and printing that you usually do in an event sort of like world, it was bigger actually than World War II. Uh, on, a, on, on an annual basis, uh, <clears throat> and with no talk at all about how we're going to pay this back. It was the, right. all the talk was modern monetary theory and don't worry about debt and, and so on and so forth. So in my view, you know, we dropped five trillion bucks from helicopters. No wonder you got inflation. That's right. where it came from. Um, now, the, the interesting question is, how is it going to evolve? And that involves uh, the Federal Reserve, which has been remarkably slow to do anything about it. <laughs> Uh, and I think that's really the issue uh, uh, going forward. Right. So we'll get to reserve in a second. So uh, I did a little uh, math, a little homework on this, John. So if you go back and you look at the uh, uh, the recession in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, my gosh, what a different time it is. Beginning with Paul Volcker, John. I don't know if you've seen the images of Volcker testifying for Congress. He's, he's testifying for the House Banking Committee. John, he's sitting there with a lit cigar in his hand. Just, you, ah, the 70s. You, you testified before Congress. If you walked into Congress and lit up a cigar, which A, would be a shocker because I don't think you consume tobacco, but B, you'd be perp walked out of there in about two seconds, I think. <laughs> Called it, you know, a villain, a crime against humanity for doing that. But if you go back and look at 1980, for example, by the fourth quarter of 1980, John, inflation was at about 11.1%. The Fed raised the rates to 19%. By July 1981, by October 1982, inflation was 5%. Volcker, by the way, had two recessions to deal with, January to July 1980, which was oil prices doubling, and then July 81 to November 1982. So you're talking really, John, about three years of economic pain for the American people, which gets back to what you were saying earlier about shallow recessions versus longer-term recessions. That was a deep uh, but surprisingly quick recession right. um, in 1980-81. So the, the quick history of this is that in the 1970s, there were uh, three bouts of inflation. Uh, each time, the, the conventional wisdom on these looks at the Fed, and the Fed did raise interest rates, uh, about one for one with inflation. But the conventional view is that wasn't enough until Volcker came along and really slammed uh, the economy over the head with a baseball bat. Uh, you know, 10% inflation, 20% interest rates. Interest rates substantially above inflation. So that gives the, the conventional view of this matter that um, you have to get interest rates above inflation in order to contain inflation. Now, if that conventional view is right, uh, we're way behind the curve. And we just had a whole uh, conference about this at Hoover, John Taylor, uh, Brandon, you know, why is the Fed behind the curve? Uh, we are now at 9% inflation and still 2.5% interest rates. So uh, on the conventional wisdom, you have to get interest rates above inflation. We got a long way to go. And the conventional wisdom says the longer you wait, the worse it gets. And then you have to have this period of interest rates above inflation, wait out the bruising recession, stick with it until you finally slay the beast of uh, inflation expectations. Uh, if that's what we have to do, it's going to be brutal <laughs> because it's going to be a long time before we get there. 
uh, if the Fed tries to raise interest rates to 15%, Congress is going to go nuts. Uh, if we have a big recession, we're now in this in this uh, system that everybody expects another five trillion bucks of federal stimulus for the recession. Well, uh, the whole point of the, the whole reason we got here in the first place was five trillion bucks of bailout and stimulus. Uh, so if that's the way things have to go, it's it's going to be really tough. Now, um, it's not obvious that's the way things have to go, and uh, inflations have been ended much more successfully in the past. Um, unfortunately, they've been ended successfully by stopping the underlying fiscal problem first, as opposed to the monetary problem. In the 1980s, the Fed raised interest rates, and then we had the uh, 82 and 86 tax reforms. We had the deregulatory effort. And those were incredibly important parts of fixing inflation because they got the economy booming again. Uh, and that's what paid off uh, all the debt that was incurred at the time. Uh, well, so uh, you're going to have to do that too, and, and that's an even uh, farther thing from possibility. But if you do those reforms with the monetary reform, you can bring down inflation quickly without all that pain, which would be the nice nice way to do it. So, John, if, we, uh, so if, we, if the next John, if the next episode of Goodfellas were devoted to economics and not Taiwan, here is the question I think I'd be posing to you to kick this off. And this is a column in Bloomberg by no less than Neil Ferguson, our fellow Goodfellow, uh, writing the following quote. Have we just passed peak inflation, Neil asks. That was the question economists were debating last week when the U.S. Labor Department published the latest consumer price inflation rate. The index in June was 9.1% above the level a year before, the highest figure since December 1981. There we are back with Paul Volcker, John. Neil goes on, quote, is that the top? We're all entitled to guess, of course, but the idea that the average economist could know the answer to this question is laughable. So well, without, um, making you, without making you laugh, John, what can we then say about inflation moving forward if we can't give a prediction? And we just say, strap in, we're in for a bumpy ride. What what consolation, what advice can, can you economists give to the average consumer? We are certainly in for a, a very important experiment. <laughs> there, it's not as that we don't, there are two very well worked out views. One view says that um, uh, this is going to spiral away unless the Fed you know, goes to 9, 10 15% now. Right. The other view says that uh, the Fed doesn't really have to move that aggressively and that a lot of this inflation will go away on its own. Mm -hmm. uh, and the evidence for that view is, you know, you brought up the 1970s, 1980s, which are a powerful piece of history, mm -hmm. but the long period of zero interest rates um, was also forecast by lots of economists. They said, oh, deflation will spiral exactly the same as now, except with the negative sign. Right. Uh, we had the, the uh, big recession of, the, uh, of 2008, 2009, and the Fed couldn't lower interest rates below zero. And so the, the whole Fed isn't moving fast enough crowd said, well, here goes deflation, but it didn't happen. And it deflation cured itself. So it's possible that inflation will cure itself in the same way, so long as, nothing bad happens. And, and here, uh, Neil is wonderful at reminding us that, um, <clears throat> you know, all of our forecasts are based on the idea of the economy kind of works out its dynamics and then nothing bad happens. Right. And there's all sorts of bad stuff on the horizon <laughs> that could make inflation a lot worse. So really, if you want to think about where inflation is going to go, I think the chance of bad stuff happening is important. But I do want to point that, you know, um, that we don't know where inflation is going to go is a sign of our wisdom, not a sign of our ignorance. Um, <laughs> inflation works a lot like the stock market. If you knew for sure there was going to be inflation next year, you would buy now. And that would send the prices up now, right? Just like the stock market. If I could tell you the stock market will go up next year, you'd all try to buy and the stock market would go up now. Uh, so in fact, inflation is inherently unpredictable and, and the advice for people is um, you know, deal with the risk as opposed to try and, and guess which guru is gonna tell us where it's gonna go. I'd like to get your thoughts on two aspects of inflation, John. One is real estate. Um, there is a, a piece in the uh, San Jose Mercury News this morning which talks about the median sale price of single family homes dropping in the San Francisco Bay Area, something that hits you personally because you, you would be in that demographic. It looked at five counties, including where you live, Santa Clara County, John, and it found about a 5% drop-off in that county from 1.8 million to 1.7 million. This is uh, for uh, May to June house sales, John. Tell us a bit about real estate moving forward here. Well, real estate is uh, about three things, location, location, and location, right? <laughs> yes. As, as, as you people know extent, when you first moved to Stanford. <laughs> exactly. Uh, to some extent, real estate is a national. The, so higher interest rates are going to raise mortgage rates, and that's going to lower real estate um, across the country. And in fact, 
one of the, the prime mechanisms. The Fed is trying to induce a little bit of recession. That's how it tries to uh, corral inflation. Right. And the kind of recession that it always hits home building first. Uh, the Fed raises interest rates. What does that do? It makes mortgage rates go higher. That hits home building. That hits construction. We create, a, we deliberately create a little bit of recession on the hope that that lowers inflation. That's what we're trying to do. It's going to come real estate. But the local, the, the insanity of the Bay Area, I, good luck finding, a, you quoted $1.8 million. I haven't seen anything for $1.8 million in Palo Alto, and that includes garages. Uh, the is insane overpricing of real estate here. Now, why does that happen? Because a lot of people wanted to move to California because it used to be a, a place where you could be tremendously productive in these new industries, and they refused to let them build any houses uh, or apartments or anything else for that matter. Um, total population in San Francisco, Oakland, these areas is exactly the same as it was in the 1970s, 1980s because they won't let you build houses. So the price of the existing ones skyrockets. And as they manage to kill the golden goose and persuade every company to move out of California, <laughs> that will naturally go back down again. But the good news on this is that uh, houses are not an investment. Houses are a durable good. Uh, and most of us want to continue living there. So in fact, it's too bad if the value of your house is gone down, but you got to still live somewhere. Uh, so it doesn't really uh, hit most people as, as hard as, as uh, you'd think, because the new house you want to buy goes down just as much as the old house you want to sell, so long as you want to live somewhere. In right. fact, it's great news for, for you know, young people who still want to move here. <laughs> All right, let's talk about young people for a second, John. And this is the question of debt. Generation Z, which is uh, folks born 1997 and beyond. I think you have uh, one, if not several children who fall into that demographic. Credit card balances, John. Credit card balances for uh, people under the age of 25 uh, rose by 30% in the second quarter from a year ago. That's versus 11% for the broader population. So John, are we looking at a young generation that's gonna grow up swimming in debt? Well, that's a good question. I hadn't looked at that number. Um, uh, maybe, uh, maybe not. Um, we've been worrying about this and worrying about too much debt for a long time. Actually, you know, the thing that surprised me most about the stimulus payments, I thought people were going to take these checks from the government. The average American typically doesn't have much cash lying around. They were going to take those, uh, you know, thousands of dollars of checks from the government and, and start building intergenerational wealth or whatever it is that uh, our friends on the left like to call it. And no, what they mostly did is quit their jobs and spent it right. and, and, you know, are starting to go back to work when the money runs out. Uh, so, um, you know, a young, it is perfectly natural for young people to borrow a little bit and, and then start paying it off as they grow a little older. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure I see that as a huge intergenerational worry just because like you, I'm old enough that we've been hearing these worries for a long time. It is true on average, Americans don't save uh, nearly enough, but of course, our Keynesian friends want them to spend, not save. So <laughs> policy is, is very much of two minds on all this stuff. Uh, the student debt thing is still uh, uh, an unbelievable mess completely created by the federal government. Uh, and, and we'll see how that uh, shakes out. Um, but uh Overall, um, people should start saving a little more. What can I say? Okay, let's shift now, John, talk about the Federal Reserve. You look at the chairman, Mr. Powell. Um, give us an idea, John, of kind of what the fine line is between criticizing the chairman's actions and scapegoating them. I mean, and because in our society, John, it's, we always want to point the finger of blame at somebody. And so people love to just point out, you know, Jerome Powell's choices. They love to go after Janet Yellen for using transitory inflation and so forth. Getting at here is kind of what what is legitimate criticism versus what's kind of partisan or just sort of angry driven criticism. What 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 you know what's a legitimate line to go after the chairman on in terms of his choices because they relate to the game when it came to addressing inflation. Yeah, now you know this is um, so the Fed has suffered a severe institutional failure. I don't like to personalize it in, in Powell, right? Um, but it's simply a fact that the Fed's first mandate is supposed to be inflation. It said 2%. Somehow it contrived that Congress said price stability and they contrived 2% inflation forever as their first mandate. And inflation came in at 9%. Now, something screwed up there. Right. <laughs> and it may have been unknowable. Uh, I don't think it was because Larry Summers on the back of an envelope figured it out. Um, but there are, you know, 1,500 PhD economists in there supposed to be forecasting inflation. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they said things like, oh, well, supply shocks, okay. 
So where's your team that's watching how many containers can get through the ports of LA and measuring the supply shocks? There isn't such a team. I happen to know that one there. Their view of supply is, is very small. So this is, I don't think this is so much a personal failure of Powell, who I found to be a very impressive person, uh, but it's certainly an institutional failure of the Fed. And it's interesting, the Fed is not uh, it, it has become a political institution in the sense that any technocratic institution would be having an inquiry. How did we screw up? Right. If this were our friend H.R. McMaster and, and he'd lost a whole, you know, uh, battalion group had been surprised because they were outflanked on the left and they were expect they weren't expecting it. They, you know, the commander would be court-martialed. What do you mean you weren't expecting to be outflanked on the left? You're supposed to be thinking about things like this. Right. Uh, so the Fed hasn't really, the Fed is still in defense mode of, um, oh, it wasn't our fault. We couldn't see it and so forth, rather than an honest inquiry of what happened. Uh, now this is, you know, I, I think uh, the Fed has become uh, much more political. Its mandate has expanded enormously. So, uh, you know, we, we are supposed to watch it and, and criticize its decisions. Uh, for the moment, it's not um, particularly partisan. Everyone likes to criticize the Fed. <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, you know, my, in my own thinking about this, I, I really, um, I'm, I'm good at uh, Monday morning quarterbacking, but um, having to do this in real time in the hot seat is very difficult. And so uh, I, I find it hard to personally criticize uh, the various heads of the Fed. I, I probably would have made even worse mistakes if I'd been sitting there. So coulda, woulda, shoulda, John. What coulda, shoulda, woulda the Fed have done? Well, um, this is a difficult one because uh, this inflation did not come from the Fed's monetary policy, the Fed's interest rate policy. So the criticism of the Fed is you should have reacted quicker to something that came from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And what you should have reacted quicker to is a monstrous policy mistake, but the Fed was in there with the monstrous policy mistake. Mm -hmm. So uh, one thing nobody is criticizing the Fed for, except me, I guess, is uh, its hand in this $5 trillion uh, bailout. And the Fed's actions during the uh, during the COVID were just uh, amazing. They, they bailed out the money market funds again. They bailed out the treasury market. Uh, the, the Fed and, and Powell issued a Mario Draghi worthy whatever it takes that the price of corporate bonds shall not fall. So th this was a lot of uh, what I kind of going, which nobody's looking at. But, you know, you're the, then on interest rates, uh, you know, should the Fed have more quickly raised interest rates? I think ex post, yes. Uh, but it's hard to see in real time that this isn't just individual price change. This is a real inflation, especially when your, your institutional understanding of the supply side of the economy is so neglected and, and your understanding that, that uh, you know, this fiscal blowout can cause inflation is so... Uh, so wrong. And, and, you know, and partly was a misdiagnosis. They, they looked at the monstrous the sharp recession during the pandemic and they thought lack of demand because central banks always think lack of demand. Well, restaurants aren't closed because people don't have enough money. <laughs> restaurants are closed because they're closed down because it's a pandemic. And they, they sort of gave people money thinking this is going to be the key to get the restaurants opening up again. But of course, that, that's kind of nutty. So there were, there were some sort of deep institutional, um, you know, within the bubble failures of about how we think about the economy, which I would hope uh, they, were, they were rethinking, but I don't see much signs of it. So, John, on your uh, uh, homepage on the Hoover website, uh, there's a video of you, a great video. I encourage our listeners to uh, go watch it, in which you answer the question, does government debt matter anymore? Uh, I'd answer, John, in terms of political cover, yes, because what do we see when uh, uh, Congress right now is debating chunking another, what, $300 billion into the economy? Um, debt, I think, matters, John, in this regard. It gives you cover because what's the sale to the public on this? We're going to spend more money, but hey, we're going to raise taxes on corporations, so we'll get more money back. So we'll pay off debt, if you will. Uh, interesting, by the way, Larry Summers. Now, we've been mentioning Larry Summers this podcast. For those of you who don't know who he is, he's the former U.S. Treasury Secretary during Bill Clinton's years, uh, renowned economist, former president of Harvard. He was something of a Paul Revere when it came to inflation, uh, sounding the alarm, which unfortunately wasn't heard. But here's Larry Summers, John, in the middle of the negotiations for this latest bill. So Larry, on the one hand, is criticizing government's in action for inflation, but there he is egging on the spending of more money. So I'm, excuse me, but I'm a little confused here. And I know I Larry's a Democrat, so he's being a good Democrat and trying to help the Democrats yeah. get a win to help the president before the election. But still, it's not, it's not purist. Uh, well, uh, I think that's a correct analysis. I, I 
don't want to speak for Larry, but I do not think he's read the 750 pages of this bill any more than the thousands of pages of the Build Back Better bill that it came from. Right. Uh, our, our friend and, and part-time Hoover fellow, Casey Mulligan, has read the bill. I, I, I haven't read it, but his mm-hmm. blog is very interesting on the enormous, this is basically green pork, <laughs> um, uh, vast, vast amounts of, and, and, and not really green pork, pork that is labeled green. I'm really interested in these hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, uh, most of it is, is being shoveled out to uh, green causes. Um, nobody that I can tell has even claimed to produce a number by how much will this lower the global temperature in the year 2100 uh, or how many, even how many tons of carbon will this save? Uh, we know we're going to spend what is it, $250 billion on various uh, subsidies and credits for things, but nobody even claims that number. In fact, I, I gather the president is now saying it's about energy independence, not even saving the climate. And I found that very interesting. We, we have a congressional budget office. Where's the con- congressional climate office? It takes, I, I just learned it takes um, to, to do a controlled burn in California you have to do an environmental, full environmental assessment, which takes four and a half years and typically runs uh, close to a thousand pages. Yet we're gonna spend $250 billion on the climate and nobody has done any back of the envelope. How much is this going to help global temperature in 2100 or how how much carbon is it gonna reduce? Just amazing how much money we're willing to send down a bad hole. Now you asked that I, I kind of went off uh, the river, uh, went it off topic. I'm glad there. you did because I'm actually I'm doing a podcast next week with Bjorn Lomborg, John. So I think you just gave me a nice juicy topic to bring up. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and and that would be a good a good question. I, I'm actually in our climate policy in general. I am astounded at how little quantify. There's all how little quantification there. There's all sorts of uh, we're going to spend money on X. But but don't nobody even granted government these are always made up numbers right <laughs> we know and all these calculations that there's thumbs on the scale and totally but but it, it's to the point where no one's even willing to make the made up numbers of you know how much will will subsidizing more Teslas for my uh, buddies in Palo Alto uh, actually help the global climate uh, in in a hundred years which is what. <laughs> what we but, seem but, to be but back to the question. Back but you, the question you asked though. me about debt. Back to debt. debt, yeah, debt. To debt. This is really an interesting uh, moment for economics. So up until inflation came out, uh, there was a there's all sorts of revisionist movements in economics, and there was a revisionist movement that said, "Look, debt and deficits don't matter." Uh, for 20, 30 years, 40 years, uh, you know, we've been worried about debt and deficits and our grandchildren will have to pay it back and this might cause inflation and so forth. And there was a move, even not just the modern monetary theorists, but a mainstream movement, uh, including Larry Summers, who spent 10 years arguing for secular stagnation and we need to borrow more money and spend it for the stimulus. And our treasury secretary, Janet Yellen, who on the eve of inflation said, don't worry about debt interest rates will be so low for so long that we'll never really have to pay it back. Um, This was a widespread view that that doesn't matter. And I think inflation is where all of these views hit the brick wall of reality. Uh, So it's very interesting time, I think, to to be an economist. Now, of course, people can deny reality uh, a lot, but um, we're, we're just, you know, this inflation is because the government issued enough debt that people said, ah, they're not, this is not a great investment. I need to spend this stuff now. Uh, we This faith that interest rates will be forever low. Well, we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> I think certainly there's reasons to, to think about that. And similarly, um, you know, for 10, 20, 30 years, all of our people in power and all the alphabet agencies think that the key to prosperity is demand. We just need to funnel out enough money so people can buy stuff and we can all be as, as wealthy as we want. We just hit the brick wall of supply. And, and that brick wall is, there's nothing magic. Uh, you, there's no stimulus that cures this. Uh, they can't get enough people to staff the companies and the supply chains are screwed up and you can't get the permits to get anything done. And I think we're just facing the brick wall of there's nothing but the good old fashioned Marie Kondo clean up the mess. Um, so it's, it's really a, a, if you look at it in the big picture, it's a delightful 
perhaps <laughs> uh, awakening to, to eternal realities uh, on, on debt, on supply, on interest rates. Uh, that that um, uh, and I think on energy and climate, uh, that that one will also sink in pretty soon. All right. So I found a question on the Fed, John, that I want to want to do one last uh, segment on uh, your fellow economists. And that is this uh, quote from you. Uh, you said this uh, not recently, quote, John Cochran speaking, quote, the markets seem to think we've got maybe one or two more rate hikes and then we're done. Good luck to them. I think the Fed is going to keep raising interest rates as long as inflation stays high. Uh, I'm not going to play is is with you and ask you what high inflation rates are, John. Uh, simple question. Are you staying on that island for the time being? Is that John Cochran's position? <laughs> So this is an island about what I think the Fed will do, which I think I'm actually more certain. I, I am. Uh, I've been writing about this: uh, the two views of of whether inflation will go away on its own or not. Where I think there's genuine uncertainty. I actually lean towards the view that as long as nothing bad happens, and as long as the government doesn't blow out trillions of dollars, the inflation could well go away without rate hikes. But but we'll see about that. That what the Fed is going to do, I think, is fairly clear, which is slowly and gently. Uh, keep raising rates until inflation does go away uh, from one way or another. And so uh, if inflation um, stays at 9%, you're going to see interest rates catch up with and then exceed with that inflation. The Fed is hoping that most of the inflation will go away on its own so that it's it's saying two and a half is neutral. So it, it thinks that 9% is going to fade its way back down to under 2% all on its own and two and a half percent will be enough. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but either way, you can you can tell the Fed is going to follow inflation. I do want to add on, on central banks because I want to add some criticism. I've been too nice. I think a lot of the problem is uh, the central banks used to think their main job was inflation. And their job is also unemployment, but they used to understand that the best way to help unemployment is to keep inflation in check. Because if you keep inflation in check, then you don't have to raise rates and cause unemployment in order to bring down the inflation. So there was this sort of beautiful moment of narrow technocratic agencies, and, and we worry about inflation, and that's the best way to keep unemployment, and we don't do other stuff. Mm -hmm. After the financial crisis, they morphed into this huge financial regulator and got under their heads, and this is our Fed, Bank of England, European Central Bank, the rest of them, that they were going to be the great macroeconomic planner and allocate credit and, and do uh, and pop bubbles and so on and so forth. They have also uh, moved on. When you think of the Fed, actually think mostly about financial regulation. And now um, they're, they're heading into climate and inequality and racial and social justice. And I think um, this this vastly expanded mandate is a lot of why they're falling apart on their basic job. The Fed is actually slow to the party here, uh, but the, um, uh, the whole climate, uh, th th there's this getting the central bank to deny, um, uh, to, to deny and to force banks to deny credit to fossil fuel industry uh, uh, industries is one of the big things that's going on. The European Central Bank is doing it right. You'd think they had other problems right now, but no, uh, they're in there trying to cut the fossil fuel industries out by mandated central bank. So um, I think that's another big criticism we should have of, of central banks. Get uh, in, in a democracy, independent agencies should not be running out and doing this kind of uh, uh, political stuff. Okay. Uh, finally, John, let's talk about what it is to be an economist these days. I come from a background, John, of journalism and government and politics and speech writing. And these are all very troubled professions, uh, riddled by two basic problems, John. One is access to money and fame that comes from that. And it just kind of pollutes the whole system, especially with journalism mm -hmm. these days, I think. Um, but in terms of economics, uh, you said a rather clever thing the other day. You were uh, doing an NPR interview and you said, quote, mainstream economics is like a bar fight. Uh, I don't think you're suggesting the cantina scene from Star Wars and a bunch of odd space creatures, but what is an economics bar fight, John? <laughs> uh, it's a polite and, and uh, intellectual version of the same general issue that we're all fighting about, which is what's the proper size and scope of government, really. And um, a lot of economists, um, it is no longer true that economists are typically free market types who think, um, you know, a lim limited government rule of law, let markets prevail. The vast majority of economists um, were, are, are academics, have never held a real job, uh, including me, <laughs> uh, and get into it because they want to um, 
they, they want to better the world. They're, they're, you know, they got into the business of do-gooding and, and um, the easiest way to do-gooding is to invite the government to expand in various ways. So really that's the underlying, you know, it, it reveals itself in fighting about are there financial frictions that, you know, or is, is there a climate risk to the financial system or, um, you know, the various other things that uh, go on, but really, that's the that's the fundamental thing, which which is what economists have been fighting about for hundreds of years now. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it, you know, the bar fight uh, takes place. You know, we criticize the identification restrictions or the uh, external assumptions and so forth. But um, you know, that's the same as everyone. I'm curious what what you said, and maybe you want to expand on this uh, on, on journalism. What I notice is that. Um, you used to get fame and money as a journalist by being impartial right. and and seeing both sides of the story. And now you get fame uh, by advancing the narrative, proudly so. You no longer even have to pretend to be uh, impartial. Uh, so something about the incentives changed that um, that's the way journalism operates now. Uh, economics is heading a little bit in the same uh, direction. Advancing the narrative is, is, is becoming important to a lot of economists. So here's an example of that, John. So I've been using my vacation time to read up on things that I've been neglecting for too long. And I've actually been reading books by Theodore White. I don't know if you ever read the late Ted White's books, but he wrote a wonderful series of books, John, called The Making of the President. This goes back to 1960, where he got access to Jack Kennedy's campaign. And he just writes a straightforward narrative of each campaign that year. And I'm actually reading right now in 1968, because with Bobby Kennedy, it's just an incredibly tumultuous year. It's a fascinating read. This is impartial journalism straightforward. Well, what books sell today, John? You go inside the Trump campaign and you write the most salacious things you can. And it's usually second and you know, third, you know, third word pieces of gossip. I heard this from so-and-so of no sources and so forth. And it sells books. Why? Because the article runs and there's some horrible story in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and people flock to Amazon and they buy the book. This is how the game is played. So it's great in terms of making money if you're a journalist, but I would argue, John, ultimately it weakens the institution because who are you going to trust? Right. Uh, you get the short run benefit, but, but in the long run, um, you know, once I see a politicized narrative, I know what that, I know that that's what that journalist is doing. Well, back to yeah. economics, we're going to help yeah, you well, with well, back to that. John. I mean, the, the question is, are, are any, is there a danger of economists getting too big for their britches? I mean, I look at, you know, easy to easy to pick on them, but let's look at Paul Krugman, Paul Krugman, Paul Krugman, John has his own page on IMDB, which makes him an entertainment celebrity. Uh, he's on there because he's done a lot of left-leaning documentaries, but he's also done cameos in movies. He's a fixture on late night television to tell liberal crowds what they want to hear about economics and so forth. But this would be sounding to me, John, about an economist who is maybe swimming in other lanes other than the ones he should be swimming in. Well, um, you know, I'm a free market economist. You can swim in whatever lanes you want. Uh, Krugman is, is is not an economist. I mean, he, he had a career as an economist, and and now he's a a uh, political. He's a partisan, a hugely successful partisan commentator. Right. Uh, and good luck to him with that with that job. And and I don't think he anymore pretends. When he started opining on on the moral value of politicians and the the Republican Party is the nexus of evil in in the universe. Yeah, I need to stop taking that seriously as economics. Economists have always been big for their britches. You know, Keynes was pretty darn big for his britches too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Milton Friedman, bless his heart, um, you know, uh, Milton Friedman was mostly right. <laughs> Right. So he had, he had a good reason to be big for his britches. Uh, but and in, in some sense, um, uh, uh, economists are uh, professional economists are often too removed from public policy. They often will write uh, technical articles about things that nobody cares about. Um, or conversely, they will, they will jump into public policy and, and, um, and uh, really push the numbers to say the predetermined outcome that that happens too. Um, you know, the, the puzzle is why does anyone listen to us? Economists? <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, so sometimes we got something to say. Um, so I think, I think, you know, every, everybody has to earn their, their right. And, and these, these days, um, you know, pe people like to listen to the echo chambers. So they, they sign up to Paul Krugman. Actually, I, I, I challenged a New York Times uh, editor once I was talking to about uh, Krugman's articles don't get fact-checked. Uh, and, and he does a lot of what I regard as unethical things, uh, personal attacks, you know, X is dumb, uh, attacking people's motivations for doing things. He has, he has no idea what somebody's motivations are for. 
and the the Times editor was of the old school who thought that you know standards mattered and was a little embarrassed by this, but said, "Yep, but look at all the click throughs we get." You know, uh, <laughs> he's just selling ads for us like crazy. Well, <laughs> where we are we are what we are? We're just talking about the price. Well, I guess every good fellows now we're going to talk about Taylor Swift or Tom Cruise or something like that just to get clicks. But uh, let's uh, let's uh, close this out with a couple of quick questions. We spent a lot of time on Goodfellas, John, talking about uh, the state of higher learning, you know, life in universities. I'm curious your thoughts on what kids are learning these days in terms of economics, how it might differ from back in the day when you were first introduced to economics, and then when you went on to get your PhD. Is the instruction different? Is there more, dare I say, indoctrination in terms of one belief or another, or is this something that remains... Well, I guess like going to medical school, I guess a doctor, someone who goes to medical school today would probably still get the same fundamental education they did you know, a generation ago. Is economics the same thing? Is it fluid or does it change over time? Uh, economics changes over time uh, as, as it should. Um, my impression is that the, the, the economics profession has moved uh, quite a hard left as has we just not as much as the rest of academia. And so a lot of economics education is, um, you know, political in that sense. But um, uh, there's other flaws with economics education. Uh, there's a tendency to just move the graphs around and bore people to death, uh, as opposed to bringing economics alive. Uh, and so, there's, you know, there's also sort of a counter effort. The, um, the, uh, the Marginal Revolution University uh, online classes done by Alex Tabrock and, and uh, Tyler Cowan are wonderful. Um, uh, Casey Mulligan and, and a bunch of others at Chicago have put together a price theory textbook trying to bring economics to life. The, the problem with economics education is that, um, like all education, it tends to be history of thought. It tends to be you spend a week on the wonders of the free market and then nine weeks on all the theoretical ways in which markets could fail and, and a super competent, benevolent government could fix things. And we never spend any time on the history of how do those government attempts to fix things all fall apart? Uh, and, you know, in fact, the, of which there's plenty of scholarship, the theory of regulation is not the benevolent, wonderful government exactly setting prices right. It's a theory of, of horrible failure, right, left and center. I, I wish we taught more of that um, historical basis of how policy interventions have worked out, but that's, that's certainly not, it's sort of more and more of the, of the theoretical failings of the market and, uh, and uh, how, how government needs to go on. And that, and that was my next question, actually, John, we'll, we'll wrap up with this. If I could put you in charge of a prestigious university, Stanford, Harvard, take your pick of university and you got to change the economic curriculum, what would you do? What would you add? What would you subtract? Oh uh, yeah. Um, more of um, more of bringing economics to life as for what it is. It is a wonderful tool to help understand social problems without the baggage of politics and morals. That's what what turned me into an economist when, when I saw this light of there is actual cause and effect in public policy built up from, yes, theory, we understand how these gears work, but theory validated by, by experience over and over again. You know, just take, take rent controls. It, it seems so obvious, the poor renters, the evil landlords, let's stop them from raising the rents. Uh, but it just takes a, a quick supply and demand graph, and then some pictures of what bombed out cities from rent control look like, and you, you understand why this is, it's, it's, it's not a bad policy because it's evil. It's simply here is cause, here is effect. Uh, and we understand why that cause leads to that effect. And we have historical evidence that that cause leads to that effect. That's what economics is great for. And, and there's just a couple of little mental habits that you need to learn by experience. You can't learn them in theory, but you know, ask uh, what's the budget constraint? If we're going to spend more on this, we're going to spend less on something else. Where Follow the money around. Uh, where did that money come from? Where is it going to go? <laughs> um, there's a supply curve and a demand curve. You know, why are prices, so house prices so high in Palo Alto? Not just because people want to move here, because they won't let you build housing. Aha! <laughs> uh, so so these, these sort of little questions that we ask. Also learning to ask those questions of statistics. Ah, you know, rich guys smoke cigars. Mm, smoking a cigar won't make you rich. Uh, learning to see those uh, things to understand our life and our public policies. That, that's what great economics can be about. 
Yeah, I can actually test John that smoking cigars makes you poor. And we can have a whole other conversation about what the supply chain crisis has done to the global supply of cigars. But our listeners should know that John, uh, my colleague, John Cochran, is a team player. He agreed to do this at a very early hour. Uh, he is actually sitting in what looks like a very nice cabin uh, up at altitude in California. Uh, John, just give us a moment on what life is like at altitude for you. What do you do every day? You hike? Do you paddle? What do you, what do, you do in terms of enjoying the outdoors and thinking great thoughts? Can, can I admit how wonderful my life is in the summer? Uh, yeah. I'm up in uh, I'm up in Truckee, uh, which is in, in the Sierra, which uh, I like to spend time up here when I can, as beautiful as Palo Alto is. And uh, yeah, summertime, I, I can get up, I can go for a, a paddleboard, a row, a kayak, a, a mountain bike ride, something of the sort. Uh, then I work. <laughs> uh, then I go for a little walk in the afternoon. My family's going to be coming up, so we'll do various activities. I also fly gliders, uh, which I can do out of Truckee Airport, which I love to do during the summertime. So, uh, uh, you know, that's a, it's, it's a great, great and productive life. It's a good life. Well, John, thanks for doing this. And uh, obviously, thanks for being a part of Goodfellas, which we're doing, I believe, tomorrow. The schedule holds up at even early hours. So you, you are indeed, sir, a team player. It's much appreciated. Thank you. And thanks for, as, as you always do, uh, steering us to a great conversation. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst, that's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. John Cochran, brave man, or maybe foolish man that he is, is on Twitter as well. His Twitter handle is at John H. Cochran, Cochran spelled C-O-C-H-R-A-N-E. And The Grumpy Economist, you can find on the web at johncochran.blogspot.com, or just simply type in John Cochran, Cochran spelled with an E. It's the first thing that pops up on Google. Easy peasy. Goodfellows, by the way, which I keep mentioning, we have a new episode coming up. You can find it through the Hoover Institution's webpage. You can find it on YouTube. And yes, if you wouldn't mind, please subscribe to that too. We're shameless. We want to get more stars. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.